Hello, my name's Ros Ward. This is Red Flag Radio. We're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never seeded. That always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We're a revolutionary socialist podcast, which means um, we don't have a lot of money <laughs> and we don't necessarily have everyone in the world who wants to publicise revolutionary socialist ideas, certainly not rich people. Um, so if you enjoy the show and you like the kind of things that you, that we're talking about, then we do really appreciate people spreading the word um, about our little podcast. And at the moment, we're averaging about 500 people listening to every episode, which is pretty, pretty good. But um, imagine if you shared it with one other person and that would be a thousand people potentially listening to um, some of the most left-wing content basically in any Australian podcast that you can find. And, you know, we spend a bit of time researching, getting um, some excellent guests on the podcast, putting some time into the editing. Well, not me, but Liam Ward, who technically produces. Um, so we do really appreciate people listening to episodes. So even if you can't contribute on Patreon, um, you can help us by sharing the link to this podcast on whatever platform you listen we're excited today to have a friend of the show, um, Sagar Sanyal, back to talk about economics. And stay tuned because actually, I mean, as Marxists, we talk about economics a lot. And Marx obviously wrote and studied economics very deeply, but never in a vacuum. And I think that that's one of the most important parts of Marxist economics is to think about the impact that the system of production that we live in, which is currently capitalism, has on people's lives. So at the moment, what we're looking at economically is prices of a magnitude that's still yet to be seen. And I think um, in that light, we need to be able to understand the kind of context for that crisis, what Marxists understand by economic crisis, and kind of how the legacy of the last big crisis in 2008, the global financial crisis or the GFC, as it's known, um, have kind of got us into the position that we're in now. So that's the, the theme uh, for the show for this episode. So I wonder if we just start with um, the nature crisis in economics and kind of the idea that we should have theory about crisis. Why do Marxists want to talk about this particularly? Well, for Marxists, as you say, it's the starting point for looking at economics is politics, right? We care about crises and theorize about them because crises reveal the true nature of capitalism to large masses of people. That's the starting point. So what is capitalism? It's a system based on competition between capitals, obviously, between capital and labor, and between ruling classes. So world crises of capitalism intensify this competition. And they make obvious to people the destructive consequences of competition, something that's not so obvious in times of economic boom when competition is less intense, right? So why does all this matter? Why, why does it matter to have competition be apparent? Because defenders of capitalism love to point out that capitalist competition is responsible for 
productivity raising innovations in how we produce things, or they want to say self-interested competitive interests of capitalists are what motivate new investments and make jobs for workers. So in times of economic boom, like in the 1990s when I was growing up, defenders of capitalism could say profits lead to a win-win situation. Both bosses and workers get an income. All nations can gain from peaceful free trade, right? So it looks like whatever great historical evils have happened in the era of capitalism were just because of um, bad pre-modern ideas, irrational ideologies, colonialism, world war, fascism. They're nothing to do with capitalism per se. It's just, you know, Hitler figures. Blame it on them. Um, we are better than that now, so long as we follow economic mm. rationality, right? Um, and during those boom times, all this talk that Marxists have about classes have necessarily antagonistic, counterposed interests can just seem like dogma, just old-fashioned rhetoric, right? So what Marxists point out is that the same competition is also responsible for mass unemployment, austerity, authoritarianism protectionism, war, and because capitalist crises intensify competition, they make classes act more according to their class interest. To survive intense competition, ruling classes have to act more like ruling classes. They have to keep the rabble in line. They have to crack the whip to make us work harder for less. They have to use us as cannon fodder to conquer territory. All this clarifies for people what the capitalist class really is. And even more relevant for Marxists, crises also make workers act more according to our class interests, right? Not everyone, not all in the same way, but a lot of people. So masses of working class people who've never cared about politics before, never identified as working class, suddenly realize that the bosses, the courts, the police are all on one side and they're on the other side. Um, and that's because the, the ruling classes in crisis times tend to push people into a corner. So you have to figure out this stuff. Um, and if you start to put up a fight as a worker, you tend to do it in a collective way because you can't just ask your boss for a pay rise as an individual. So again, that um, reveals something about the class that Marxists point out, which is that the working class is inherently a collective class. And I think one other thing is worth keeping in mind about crises, which is that just as important, capitalist crises affect the whole world system. So like today, or the Great Depression of the 1930s, or the long depression of the 1870s, 1880s, or the stagflation crisis of the late 60s and 70s, all this means that the clarifying of class interests becomes apparent to groups of people in country after country all at once. So rebellious people start to take note of each other across borders and learn from one another. Um, so all of a sudden, all this talk of international working class unity can seem less like some utopian moralizing and more like a possibility that's rooted in the nature of the class. So I think all that to say, the, the basic thread that crises reveal the true nature of capitalist competition helps us make sense of a lot of how world politics has shifted in the last 12 years since the GFC. Mm. 
And I mean, it's, it doesn't even have to be an economic crisis, but economic crises really get to the core of the central dynamics of capitalism. But even now in the health crisis that has come about as a result of COVID-19, the fact is that everyone's saying, oh, all of this massive inequality that exists in society seems much more obvious than it usually does in a period of crisis. And I think that's even more so in, in an economic crisis when, yeah, as you say, the class dynamics are suddenly brought to the surface. So I think what then happens is in order to explain those crises, and the same thing has happened since 2008, like you said, different explanations except for it's something to do with capitalism, um, functionally sort of being um, predisposed to crisis. Instead, people think, oh, well, let's blame this on some individuals or some dodgy practices. And I think in 2008 that the most um, talked about explanation in the mainstream has certainly been, you know, that there were all these dodgy kind of mortgage brokers who sold people all these subprime mortgages that kind of broke the rules and should have been regulated better. Um, you know, the idea of all the ninja loans, I think it was that people were sold to, you know, uh, so you could buy a house even if you had no income, no job, no assets, and people going, well, if they didn't do that, they wouldn't have caused this crisis. So that sort of dodgy practice theory. Um, but I think, I mean, obviously, I think we're going to talk about the fact that it wasn't that that caused the um, 2008 global financial crisis. And it was more than just a short-lived kind of crash or a blip really in in um the functioning of capitalism. So what's your perspective on what caused the 2008 GFC? Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's a difference between a trigger for a depression and then the underlying cause, right? So a tree falling on a snowy mountain slope can trigger an avalanche, but it's not really the cause. The cause is the buildup of snow on the slope and so on, right? So if it hadn't been the tree falling, it would have been something else. Um, so what was the trigger? As you say, there were these mortgages in the U.S. made to poor people, and there was a real risk they would never be able to pay it back. And then there were derivatives, which were just things derived from the mortgages. Um, and the derivatives were sold to banks and pension funds all over the world. When the mortgages failed, the derivatives failed, and that spread the immediate impact beyond the U.S. to all sorts of countries. So the mainstream discussion, as you say, focuses completely on the finance sector. So bad regulation of the mortgage companies, uh, conniving investment bankers, making up these complex derivatives, which no one understood, corrupt credit rating agencies, which said the derivatives were low risk, which is why all these people all over the world bought them. And mainstream economists in particular want to keep the discussion as narrow as possible because they don't want to admit that the capitalist system has anything wrong with it. So it's the old strategy of any ruling class, which is blame the Pope, never the church, right? So first, why should we think that there is anything beyond the trigger? Well, for one, why did the mortgage crash happen in the first place? Why were all these mortgages failing at the same time, rather than just a handful each year in dribs and drabs for, you know, over decades? Well, the answer is because of something going on in the productive economy, basically in the capitalist mode of production as a whole. 
or again, the immediate financial crisis was dealt with by about 2010. Confidence had been restored in the banks. They weren't going to fail because they were holding these toxic assets anymore. So how come since 2010, we've had a decade of very slow growth, right? Um, often, depending on what you read in the mainstream media, people don't focus on this slow growth, but um, economists certainly do. So Larry Summers, a former U.S. Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton, calls it secular stagnation. Secular in this case just means a long-term trend, right? With little periods of faster growth now and then, but overall, a stagnation, slow growth throughout the world. And how come that's happened? Well, again, because of something about the productive economy outside of finance, which can't be fixed just by bailing out the banks. So that's what Marxists point to. The mainstream economists tend not to want to talk about those more systemic things. So that's why they keep the, the discussion narrow. Mm. Our comrades across the world. So what is the thing underneath it all then? I mean, that, that's the really the crunch question, because if it's something deeper than that, what is it about capitalist economics that leads to these crises periodically? Well, Marx, so really the explanation begins from Marx's own economics. He had a group of explanations for capitalist crises, which all interact with one another, the different explanations. And they operate at different levels of depth in the economy. Some are kind of at the surface, some are a bit deeper. The deepest of the explanations people might have heard of is called the long-term tendency for the rate of profit to fall throughout the world. But um, we don't need to go into all the economic complexity. Let's keep it concrete. So why did all these mortgages fail? Well, aggregate corporate profits in the U.S., had stopped growing by about mid-2006, and they declined for the next two years. Aggregate meaning throughout the economy, not particular firms, but overall. And since it's the expectation of profit that entices capitalists to make new investments, because profits weren't growing, new investments dried up. And with that, new job creation dried up. And there were lots of layoffs. So all of a sudden, workers' incomes began to drop. And that's why a whole bunch of workers all at once could not make their mortgage payments throughout the country. And then why have we had 12 years of secular stagnation? Well, because capitalists don't expect to make big profits from new investment. The central reason for this is that in many key sectors of the world economy, there's overcapacity. There are too many factories, too much plant and equipment. So when there's too much productive capacity already in an industry, why would investors open up yet another factory, right? Um, when I say key sectors, I mean things like mining, drilling, steel making, automobiles, ports. What makes them key is just that many other industries are related to them. So if investments dry up in key industries, the effects ripple out in much of the rest of the economy. Really, this is a classic example of something that Marx observed in his time, which is that crises under capitalism are this weird thing where people are starving, not because there's too little in society, but because there's too much. There are too many factories, so people don't have jobs. Sounds counterintuitive, right? So just to be clear, too many relative to what? 
not relative to human need. Obviously, there's lots of people who need more clothes, houses, food, appliances, computers, or you know, public transport, schools, hospitals, all sorts of stuff. But it's not profitable to sell them. So it's too many factories relative to what can be sold profitably. Um, so that's the central dynamic. How do you end up with too many factories? Well, again, mainstream economists want to say they have this myth that markets make demand and supply equal. If that's true, then it's mysterious how you could end up with overcapacity on such a scale to cause a world depression, right? So the real explanation has to do with the unplanned and competitive nature of production under capitalism. Capitalist competition, is a, it's a bit like a battle over territory. Some capitalists hold the territory and other capitalists try to take it over. So what's the territory? It's market share. In any given sector of the economy, some corporations have a set way of producing things using a set kind of technology with a set kind of cost. New capitalists enter the sector to try to take over the market share. And how can they do it? What are their weapons for battle? It's the lower production cost. That's their primary weapon, to use Marx's analogy. The new entrants have more productive machinery, so you can produce more of the same commodity with, this, uh, with the same amount of labor. Or they have lower-waged labor, or they can get the cheaper, uh, they have a cheaper source for the raw materials, or they have lower transport, transport costs, right? So it's because of those things that they enter a market and try to take it over. But the capitalists with higher production costs don't just give up the territory and go bankrupt as soon as new competitors come in because they've got these sunk costs in their artillery and tanks, so to speak, their factories and plants. So they can't get the money back for their factories if they just leave the sector. Um, so, you know, maybe they'd hoped to make a billion dollars in profit by using their factory for 30 years. Now, only after, say, 15 years, more productive factories have entered the market. The old guard is going to try and stick around for another five or 10 years if they can, even if it means lower profits than they had hoped for, um, selling just barely above their production costs because they need to keep up with the lower prices of the new entrants. But what this means is you can end up with this overcapacity in sector after sector because um, the heat of competition periodically leads to too much investment in key sectors. And so this overcapacity builds up. And that's why you also have this kind of um, apparent just absurdity of um, wastage in capitalism, which again, seems very contradictory to the, all the arguments from mainstream economists to say that this is the most efficient way of running system through this market-based production and yet um so many times you know whatever it is that humans might need like you said like food is, as a prime example is just wasted and dumped or dug back into the ground or you know tipped into the ocean basically mm. because it's no longer useful in a capitalist sense because it can't turn a profit and that's the same with um machinery that would otherwise be productive and um, on a much bigger scale, the amount of things that are wasted in the system because of this tendency to overproduce um, is another sort of huge failure 
um, of capitalism. And, and it's the thing that drives into these periods of crisis. So you use the analogy of um, kind of a land grab of economics all of the time and the market share and everything. But if we're thinking about crisis um, in a political sense, I mean, we're also thinking about uh, the politics domestically of crisis. So how do individual national governments respond? And we're seeing that now. And we're also thinking about, on a broader scale, the kind of geopolitical impact of crisis. Do you want to talk a bit about some of those implications as well? Yeah. So for a start, capitalist competition is never purely about economic strategies and firms, right? It's always, uh, you can't cut off the politics and the state from the economy. So things like labor regulations, minimum wages, trade agreements, colonialism, war, these are part of competitive strategies as well. They all help the capitals of one nation against the capitals of another nation by getting cheaper access to raw materials or markets or pulling other economies into the orbit of your economy. So states do these things even in economic boom times, but in depression times or stagnation times, they do it all the more. So in the 1870s and 1880s, the period called the Long Depression, this led to intense, bloody conquests uh, in the scramble for Africa, uh, for its mineral ores, its plantations. In the 1930s, Great Depression, this kind of competition led into World War II, right? So what, what are the geopolitics since 2008? Let's have a look at some of it. So in the US, the Obama administration acted to make some of its key manufacturing more competitive. It bailed out Big Auto, for instance, but at the same time, it used the opportunity to force the creation of a two-tiered workforce where the new hires had much lower conditions and wages. So um, at GM and Chrysler, new hires, uh, wages for them went from $28 an hour to $16 an hour, like a huge drop. Uh, at General Electric, mm. new hires went from $22 to $13, like practically halved. And this was because of state action, specifically the Democratic Party, right? Corporations on their own might have struggled against the unions to get away with this kind of an attack. The U.S. also made a big push uh, back then to expand oil drilling, fracking, natural gas pipelines. This was, um, it significantly reduced the production costs of many domestic heavy industries, which relied on natural gas as their fuel or their raw material. So again, this made them relatively more competitive against foreign uh, rivals. Or China, under Hu Jintao, had a very large bout of domestic state spending on factories, railways, city construction. Their aim was to spend their way out of recession while creating a lot of new productive capacity and infrastructure. The CCP saw that some of the old guard corporations in North America or Europe were looking a bit shaky after 2008. So they saw this as an opportunity. They saw the GSC as an opportunity to expand their productive capacity to take over the market share of the Western corporations. And then in 2013, under Xi Jinping, uh, China announced the Belt and Road policies to make use of the industrial capacity they'd built up to construct infrastructure around the world. And that was to try and integrate other economies in Asia and Africa into its own orbit. 
and away from the US and Europe to try and create cheaper trade routes for Chinese exports to Europe and cheaper access to raw materials from Africa. So all this stuff from the US and China, a consequence of it is that it has worsened the overcapacity in key industries. Um, so US expansion of oil and gas, for instance, or China, um, which already had huge overcapacity in steel making before 2008, by 2010 with its stimulus, um, China's surplus capacity alone was greater than all the steel produced in Europe, right? So just to give a sense of what we're talking about when mm. we say overcapacity and why investors don't think it's worthwhile to invest more. Um, and then the growing trade war between US, China, and the EU, that's another expression of competition between major powers. When the world economy as a whole is not growing very fast, when it's stagnant, each national ruling class can try to grow uh, its nat national corporations by protecting its markets, right? Stop foreign capital selling to it and hope that your domestic capitals can fill that market share. Um, a consequence of this is lots of the export and transport businesses suddenly faced lower demand because there's less trade going on. So that deepened the depression, right? Um, same thing had happened in the 1930s, by the way. So increasing protectionism deepened and lengthened the Great Depression by slowing down the demand for goods. Major ruling classes got increasingly desperate in the 30s, and eventually that pressure resorted to war, right? Because they tried to forcibly open up other people's economies through conquest. Um, after World War II, it was accepted opinion among mainstream economists that that kind of protectionism was counterproductive in a depression, and we should never let it happen again. After 2008, mainstream economists were congratulating themselves, boasting, look how we've learned from the 1930s. Um, because in the immediate few years after 2008, there wasn't protectionism. There were these continued agreements of open borders. Um, but clearly they were speaking too soon. So the longer the stagnation has dragged, the more desperate ruling classes have become, and they've adopted exactly the same competitive policies as they did in the 30s. Just to go to 2008 and what were the twin strategies, I guess, to um, try to ameliorate the crisis that were basically bailing out big industries and banks by pumping in trillions of dollars of government money, um, twinned with austerity on working class people, so cutting people's benefits, um, cutting wage rates and pensions and um, cutting funding to um, public services. And particularly in Europe, I think, and obviously Australia is a bit of a different case to all of this, but that was really the dominant um, strategy in Europe and America, bailouts and austerity. Did either of those things have any positive effect? Um, well, yeah, oddly, they've kind of deepened problems. So um, the bailouts, for a start, they had two kinds of effects. The one is sovereign debt, which is debt owed by the state, and the other is corporate debt. So it would be one thing if the GFC was just a blip, if it was purely a financial anomaly, like the mainstream economists claimed, 
with no underlying basis in the productive economy, then you would expect that once you've shored up the banks by bailing them out, then you'll return to rapid growth and then you'll repay the debt. But we haven't had that. We've had this continued stagnation, not growth, right? So because of the deeper problems in the productive economy. So lots of countries continue to have very heavy sovereign debt, including not just poor countries, but very rich countries. And commentators now worry that some of them will default on their debt or that speculators will lose confidence in their economies and tank their economies by taking their money out. And many corporations, which would have gone bankrupt after 2008, which would have eased the overcapacity somewhat, by the way, but they didn't go bankrupt. They remained alive by taking on a lot of corporate debt. And many of them now can only just make the interest payments and keep ticking over, but things aren't improving for them. In effect, they're dead firms walking, right? They're zombie firms, as you said. So either way, the debt has just kicked the can down the road and added more points of weakness to the world economy, which can trigger new recessions. And then the austerity stuff, um, so it's cutting uh, state spending, as you said, in some places cutting, um, in some third world countries, it has been cutting government food subsidies, for instance, which very directly and very quickly, obviously, starts to hurt people's living standards. And the rationale for all this was to make labor power cheaper, to try and reduce production costs and raise profit margins. And the hope was that um, your nation's capitalists would become more competitive compared to other nations' capitalists because your production costs are lower now. Well, that worked to some extent for the ruling class, but one major consequence of austerity is that it provoked resistance from below. So the Arab Spring rebellions in 2011 were sparked in part by the austerity as well as a few other things like growing unemployment, um, drying up of money, coming back from family members who work abroad, things like that. And then soon after the Arab Spring stuff, there were the large anti-austerity movements in Greece and Spain. And um, you could say the first round of the Black Lives Matter move movement in 2013 and 2014 was partly fueled by the, by the crisis um, as it hit working class black communities because the subprime mortgages were disproportionately for black households. And when the mortgage companies and banks got bailed out, the people got nothing. They just lost their homes. They became renters. And it was the largest loss of wealth by the black population in history in, in the US under Obama, no less. And the spike in unemployment also disproportionately hit black communities, right? So there's, it fed into the Black Lives Matter stuff. Um, and then more recently, we've seen another wave of rebellions. Uh, again, austerity plays a role. So the ongoing wave beginning in 2019, Algeria, Sudan, France, Chile, Iraq, Lebanon, Iran. So in a sense, um, the ruling classes are trying to get their economies going again through austerity, but they can't push too far because they understand people will rebel and it's not easy to control people when they're in the streets like this. Mm -hmm. And I guess, I mean, there's been th those dynamics of resistance and rebellion, but on the other hand, there's been a, a much discussed and written about um, increase in far-right activity and nationalism, Trumpism, um, if you want to give it an ism, you know, the Brexit vote. People can write long lists of things that have become more polarised to the right 
since 2008. But I wonder if, you know, we get accused of sort of being economic reductionists saying everything, you know, you can just trace everything back with a single stroke to the economy. I mean, how would you respond to that kind of um, question or <laughs> disagreement kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think than that. I think it is it is complicated, but I think there are relevant connections between the economy and and the far right here. So long as we avoid the economic determinism and give politics its due, right? So consider two things. So one is where was mainstream politics at before the GFC hit, and two. What are the main sources of nationalism and the far right sentiment? Does it bubble up from below from ordinary people or is it cultivated from above? Right. So first, where was mainstream politics? Long before the GFC, mainstream center right and center left parties used the war on terror framing to cultivate Islamophobia, racial profiling, rolling back civil liberties, increased powers for police. And then also from the mid 1990s, both the US and the EU ruling classes had been militarizing their borders with Mexico and North Africa to stop migrants fleeing, you know, collapsing economies as well as war. And the migration policies normalized uh, a kind of callousness towards the lives of black and brown people. Hundreds of refugees routinely drowned in the Mediterranean because armed forces wouldn't let them land. Um, it was so routine, it didn't really make the news, except, you know, once in a while, a reporter got a photo of, you know, a three-year-old washing up on a, on a shore, and everyone was reminded again of what's happening. Um, or the new armed forces and the detention center guards that were created, like Frontex in Europe, or in the US, this ICE and the Customs and Border Police, they've really been the breeding ground and the networking ground, more importantly, for the far right. And these are the forces that Trump is now turning to in, in Portland, for instance, is the border police. So thanks to this opening created by mainstream parties, the far right was already growing before 2008. Because if Muslims and migrants were such a threat, like the mainstream party, parties were saying, well, the far right were prepared to take much tougher action than the mainstream was. So why wouldn't you vote for them, right? And then after the GFC, they grew much faster. So in the mid middle of austerity, they campaigned on saying it's the migrants who are taking our jobs or our welfare. That's why we don't have enough for the, you know, the sons of the soil. Meanwhile, the mainstream parties obviously were not giving any alternative message. They're not exactly going to say, no, no, the reason you're poor is because we refuse to tax the rich to help you. So all they had to offer, the mainstream parties, was more of the same, of the stuff they'd been doing since the GFC, which had clearly worsened people's living conditions. And then more generally, beyond the far right, it's also nationalism and authoritarianism, even when it's not far right. So some of the nationalism is an expression of the more intense international competition. So if it's nationalism built around trade wars or diplomacy or proxy wars to increase your regional influence, um, or for some, there's a cultivation of a narrative that a strong leader is needed to navigate, you know, the, the world situation, which is kind of stormy, uh, so that we can stick up for our national interest um, in the regional sphere of influence. So all this kind of narrative is used from above to corral votes from people who are 
increasingly disoriented by falling living standards, by the betrayal of center parties, the collapse of civil norms. Um, so Trump, Xi Jinping, Putin, uh, Modi, Bolsonaro, Erdogan, Khamenei, uh, all sorts of examples, and always a cultivation of national unity or dreams of being a regional power to distract from the clear and growing disunity between the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer. Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic summary, I think, of the connections between um, the far right nationalism and crises, but also just capitalism more broadly. And I think it's useful to, um, yeah, as you say, not be just dragged into some pure economic determinism on any of these questions. And we've had a really great discussion. We're going to um, pause at this point and tune back in for episode two because we've really covered, I think, a whole heap of the lead up to where we are now. And so um, the second part of this two-part special, we're going to look at what is going on with the economic crisis now. Can there be a recovery? And what are some of the theories going around about how to deal with that? So thank you so much, uh, Sagar, and tune in to part two. And you're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>